Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And so, along with Agar, we pray to you, O God. We don't fully know you. You fully know us. And we're growing, we're learning. I pray that we would do so now. And it's only by your Spirit that this happens. I thank you that you are unchanging. And we can come to you. I thank you for your unfading love for us, shown in Jesus Christ. Pray he would be honored, and you would be honored, and the Spirit by whom all this is done would be honored. In Jesus' name. So, Proverbs was written in a different time and culture than us, yet it continues to be relevant today because it's part of God's revealed word. And so it contains timeless truths for all of time. As you probably know, Proverbs is part of the wisdom writings of the Old Testament. And Proverbs poetically talks about pride and humility. What they are. And it, it's more in descriptive language, not really prescriptive explicitly. And it doesn't really even define it for us. But it does paint vivid pictures and gives descriptors that help you to understand what each is and also what the consequences of each is, both pride and humility. In this manner of writing, it is as though the sages just assume that you know what pride and humility are or that you'll catch on quickly. That's only if you take the time to savor this hard candy of the word. That's borrowed from Pastor Sean, from Tim Keller, I think. Um, so I'm praying that this study will whet your appetite to spend time reading, meditating on, and applying the book of Proverbs, especially in the matter of pride and humility. This is just a taste. That application will happen in your lives for the rest of your life. So there are five components of the picture of pride and humility found in God's word. 
I'll just give them quickly to you. We'll look at the contrasting patterns, the common plane, the common people, the conquering potentate, and the countering plan. We'll understand that more as we uh, go through it. Let's just start with the contrasting patterns. We'll look at pride, and then we'll look at humility. In the book of Proverbs, there are certain words and keywords that you can look at. Actually, now that we have cell phones, we can search. You know, it's electronic. You put in the word haughty, arrogant, boasting, pride, or proud. You can uh, find these proverbs on pride. So I'll read some of them as well. Uh, for example, for haughty, in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 17, it says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed blood. And it goes on, talking about seven sins. You could call them the seven deadly sins of Israel. And haughty eyes is at the head of that list. Proverbs 18, verse, oh, sorry, Proverbs 8, verse 13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Then it says, Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. This is God speaking. Pride and arrogance hate. Pride can be also seen in boasting. So Proverbs 27 verses 1 to 2 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Let another praise you, and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. They also related characteristics and characters to pride. The scoffer is said to be prideful. Scoffer is the name of the arrogant. Haughty, the man who acts with arrogant pride. That's Proverbs 21, verse 24. Also, another characteristic, a characteristic of pride is its friendship with folly. And that and it, pride does not listen to nor seek wisdom. So it's the opposite. We've learned about lady wisdom, lady folly. It does not listen to wisdom. Listen to Proverbs chapter 9, verse 7 to 8. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abused, and he who repro reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Also, we see that Pride is expressed through words, through anger, through a lack of love, and all manner of sin. And so, in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 4, it says, Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked is sin. Or our sin. Haughty eyes and a proud heart. It's also, 
It's also an abomination to God. That's an important thing we need to think about it. How does God think about pride? Pride is an abomination to him. If you look at the results of pride, there are three things you can think of. Destruction, disgrace, and fall. Those are good words to think about. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2. It says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. All these things showing that the results of pride are destruction, disgrace, and a fall. A verse that brings it all together, verse 18 of chapter 16, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That is very severe language or very severe prognosis, you could say. There's going to be destruction with pride. And let's just look at, again, how God looks at this. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 to 17. There, oh, sorry, a different one. Oh, that's right. I read it before, but the the verse 16 part. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are are an abomination to him. I mean, he just repeats it. He's just saying, pride, God hates pride. And uh, also the word scoffer can be associated with pride as well. In Proverbs 19.25, it says, Strike a scoffer, and the simple will learn. Reprove a man of understanding, and he will gain knowledge. In your life, are you convinced that God hates pride? You can be thinking about that while we look at humility. Some key words for humility in the Proverbs are, as you might expect, humble, humility, lowly of spirit. A lot of the Proverbs are already read have humility in contrast to pride already. And so um, I won't necessarily read all those again, but I'll read Proverbs chapter 29 verse 23 which says, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. So that lowly in spirit um, is what it shows there. And from Chapter 11, verse 2, we see humility's friendship with wisdom and the fear of the Lord. And as opposed to pride, humility is looked upon favorably by God. Proverbs 3, verse 34 says, Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. In the New Testament you hear, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's just 
how God is. The results of humility are honor. We read before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. And also the results of humility is a life well lived. Proverbs 22 verse 4 says, The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord together are riches, honor, and life. It's that idea of shalom, living and having your heart as things should be. So, those are very helpful things, I hope, as you think about Proverbs. That's your homework to go, you know, you can go back and look at those things. You'll also see where he talks about the simple, gaining understanding, the simple, going towards wisdom, and Proverbs chapter 21, verse 11 is very helpful with that. But let's go to the second point. We've talked about wisdom and, sorry, pride and humility, keep thinking about wisdom, as opposites. And the second point is that they're on a common plane. I'm thinking not plane as in flying to Texas. I'm thinking plane as in if you have a coin, it sits on a plane. Think mathematics. Maybe you hate mathematics. But anyway, but you have a heads and a tails, whichever one you want. Pride and humility are on the same plane. And this is how they're joined. Pride and humility can be viewed in light of circumstances. So, the poor can be considered humble or in humble circumstances. The rich could be considered proud or in, in a place where they could boast. It's interesting that James, in James chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, talks about the rich man rejoicing in his low position and the poor man rejoicing in his high position. Things are a little flip there. It's almost like a flip of a coin. But that's how it is with God. Whereas we might think one way, he honors the humble. Whereas we, with our own eyes, tend to honor those we see um, as high and with pride. The other aspect that's common, pride and humility can be viewed in terms of the heart. And we, we talked about that. So it's not just your circumstances. It can be just in your heart. Pride and humility describe a posture, perspective, and a position. So I talked a little bit about the poor and rich. That's an easy one to do. But your position, maybe even your status, um, but that's circumstantial, but even in your heart. Those things, the perspective you have, the posture you have, and the position you have. Since God looks at the heart, First Samuel talks about that, we will tend to define and address pride and humility in terms of the heart and see how each can be manifested in different circumstances of life. Let's just go back to pride and humility in the different sections as we think about all of Scripture. It, it talks about how the pride neglect or disregard God, and in this same way, neglect and disregard others who are made in God's image. 
It's expressed in self-sufficiency or an attempt towards it. You're not really self-sufficient, if you think about it. Self-exaltation, that's, that's one way you can, you can sort of notice pride when somebody is exalting self. Um, and it's incompatible with saving faith in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's have a working definition. I borrow this from C.J. Mahaney. who says, Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence on Him at any level. When sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their obedience to uh, their dependence on Him. Another way to think about it is contending for supremacy with God. It re- pride wreaks havoc in our lives, our hearts, and our relationships. It can be very overt or very subtle. It's often easier to spot in others than in yourself. Maybe you've been on vacation. We, we went to the beach a couple of weeks ago, and when I walk out, I didn't grow up going to beaches, but, you know, I walk out, and the beaches, I think it's because there are not so many trees and there's an ocean effect. Maybe there's, it's very windy there. So you see the dust, but the dust is only in the distance. There's dust there, dust there. Over here, it looks good. But that's how it can work with pride. Let that be a picture where you don't be fooled that there's not dust here. As you see it out there, also here. Like fog. Fog is a little bit like that too, especially when it's not too foggy. It, it seems like, oh, yeah, you can't see there and so much fog. Then you, just because you can see 20 meters and it seems clear, doesn't mean that there's no fog here. And our hearts can be like that. Some challenges with pride is that is the it's it's pervasiveness in the human heart, and there's an incessant, incessant tendency towards pride in our hearts, and we do not have the apparatus in and of ourselves to completely and permanently remove pride from our hearts and lives. And if so, even if we're saved because of the presence of sin, it could still pop up, and in fact, it does. It's a foe from within. That's the other difficulty. It's not like you're trying to fight pride there. It's just, it's you. It's coming from you. And it's, whew, that's a hard thing to fight. How do you do that? So, do you see pride in your life? In general, do you think about it? Are there circumstances that increase the temptation or the sin of pride in your heart? Focusing on the heart here. And how have you attempted to fight pride in the past? Do you fight it? Uh, over to humility. <laughs> um, so humility, people who are humble uh, tend to see God as the center of all things. And they seek to be in the rightful place under God. And... Um, they also see God as who he really is. There's what is called the creator-creature distinction, that God 
is the creator. We're just creatures. Now think about it. Um, I think, so if you go outside, if you just look in the sky, just think horizon to horizon, God is bigger than that. And then you remember we are just on Earth and there are more planets and our galaxy, God created that. God created the universe and he is so big just in terms of spatially. That's an amazing, that should leave, leave you in awe. And we, we do that with very physical things, the Grand Canyon and other very beautiful things. We're like, wow, the thing itself can amaze us. God is bigger than that, and he's created it. And Pastor Sean talked about how we can lose um, the gravity and the intimacy of God. And these need to come in concert with one another. And with, when we see how big God is, we tend to be very um, in awe. And, you know, it's like, wow. But the temptation with that is we think, oh, maybe we're too small for God to consider us. And um, part of the problem, I think, is because we start to compare God to ourselves. So we are thinking about how maybe we might treat Things much smaller than that. Let's think about uh, a flake of dust. You don't really have any connection with it. You might even blow it off. You might not even see it. And so, because we're so big, it, it doesn't concern us. We might think that God is the same way with us. But he is not. The word of God talks about how God is love. And as big as he is, as we think about him as creator... That's as big as his love is, immeasurable by us. Isn't that amazing? And so when you think about how immense God is, just remember, he loves us. There's not only gravity in that sense, and also that he is holy and we are sinners, we might feel the distance, but he has sent Jesus Christ to reconcile us to himself. And so we can have intimacy. Only with God can we have that big of uh, in immensity and vastness and that intimate, the closeness of that intimacy that much. He knows everything. I work with microscopes. My job is to fix microscopes. And you're trying to see really small things. And, and it can be hard and you have to focus the microscope and everything. God can see it. Uh, God can see smaller things than we could ever see. God created them, and he knows intimately, and he loves intimately. Do you believe that? I encourage you to look at the cross. Christ died that we might know him. Let's have a working definition for humility. I'll say having a right understanding of God and that he is the center in all things or having an appropriate estimation of self under God and with others. Have you ever noticed where it's hard to be or stay humble? I have four things that I thought about. You can think about more. I have plenty more. It's hard to stay humble when you're right. It's not that you're not right. You're right. Being humble in it is hard. 
How to stay humble when you're wronged. How to stay humble when you're in the right or you're innocent in a matter. And it's hard to stay humble when you succeed, when you're successful. Remember that rich-poor analogy? It's hard, harder for people considered successful, especially in this culture, rich, and many, pretty much all cultures, successful. That's hard. Other challenges are, are that it, it is difficult, if not impossible, to humble ourselves. Yet God commands it. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. 1 Peter 5, 6. And it is difficult to look at and measure humility, especially in yourself. You can recognize it, but it can be really hard. And um, seeing humility is almost like looking at stars in a, on a clear night. Um, I remember learning in high school that in our eyes we have these things called cones and these things called rods. Cones help you to see color and bright contrast. And rods basically help you see in the dark. So if you focus on something and you're focusing on the sky, you might not see as many colors but, or as many stars, but in the periphery of your vision, you might see all these dots appearing, so many stars. And you look at it and it doesn't seem as many. And part of what's happening is you're using your rods to see all those things, and it's dark, and it's, you're focusing on it. When you focus on it, it's harder to see. And so with humility, the end of humility is not humility itself. Don't be focusing on humility. Focus on God, and that brings about humility in your life. That's a big thing and helpful thing for me to just see how just looking at God, looking at Christ, um, helps bring about humility, despite pride. Now, do these descriptions about humility leave you in despair or with hope towards humility? I don't know. You can keep thinking about it. But let's look at the third thing, common people. And we're looking at examples from the Bible. Um, and we'll see pride and humility. And this is uh, pretty much the bulk of what we'll do uh, to conclude. And let's start at the beginning, um, Adam and Eve. And we can see in Genesis 3, verses 4 to 6, how their desire to be independent of God caused the fall. And uh, it's, it's the, the Proverbs is fulfilled. Pride be, goes before the fall. And it's got that literal meaning and that figurative meaning at that point. Listen to Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The point I'm trying to make is she saw that the tree was good to eat. That was her independent judgment. 
God had said, don't eat of the tree. And she's trusted her judgment and gave in to Satan's temptation more than she trusted the word of God. Now, when you go to the Bible, let's think figuratively. Sometimes when we go to it, we, we do read it like this, but we are over the Bible. And try to think figuratively that the Bible is always over us. God's word is true and is the final authority. And yes, we need to evaluate, we need to understand it, but it's always over us. Is that true in your life? Let's look at Joseph. Now, let's compare, I'm just going to paraphrase a lot of these, compare before he goes to Egypt, and then when he's in Egypt, how he speaks. Well, before he goes to Egypt, he, he was the favorite, father's favorite, and um, he had these dreams. Basically, if you interpret them, it, it came true, by the way. Uh, it was because, uh, it was that uh, his brothers would bow down to him, and he told them, and they got really mad. He told, his brothers got mad, his parents got mad, all he did was tell them the truth. I had these dreams. What's so wrong with that? You know, was he prideful? I don't know. But let's look at when he is in Egypt. <coughs> Excuse me. When um, in chapter 39, he was in Potiphar's house, and he was working well. He was pretty much second in rank. Um, and... Potiphar's wife took a liking to him, and she says, hey, lay with me. And then he says, listen to how he speaks. Um, he is not greater in this house, talking about Potiphar, than I am, he's replying. Nor has he kept anything from me except you, talking to Potiphar's wife, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness? and sin against God. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, as his persistent temptation, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to even be with her. Notice his reasoning starts with God. This is wickedness against God. Despite how I'm feeling or whatever else, God is the center here. So he's starting to speak that way. And I if you look through Joseph life, Joseph's life, he speaks that way um, throughout. And even later, this temptation continues to come, and at one point he has to flee, and that gets him in trouble. He's doing the right thing for purity's sake, and let me tell you, for God's sake. What's purity like in your life? And what's sexual purity like in your life? Notice I say purity, because it's not just sexual things. It's purity before God, a wholehearted devotion towards God. And sometimes we might think we're stronger than we are. There can be a sense of pride. Um, but let's look at God as the center. And that can help us, help us escape pride and other sins. And so... Joseph gets in prison in unjustly because of doing that, doing the right thing. And so <laughs> uh, he goes there, and um, Pharaoh's servants also get in, and they have dreams, and they say, oh, how can we interpret these? And what he says first to them is, do not interpretations belong to God? And he goes on to interpret them. 
Who interpreted the dreams? Joseph did, depending on God. Now listen to his speech. He's starting to just speak about God first. When Pharaoh calls him to interpret his dreams, he says, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. His life is just centered around God. And listen to this now. His brothers come, and it gets fulfilled. The dreams get fulfilled. They bow down before him. And um, he says to them, when he meets them, when he's revealing who he is, he says, God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. Later on, his father dies, and his brothers who had sold him thought, oh, now he's going to kill us. And, um, and he hears it, and his heart breaks. He weeps, and this is what he says. Do not fear, for I am, am I in the place of God? Listen to how he just talks about God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, centered around God. Think of David and Goliath, 1 Samuel, two, uh, 1 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 17. When he's going before Goliath, he says, I come to you in the name of the Lord. When he talks to Saul before that, he says, the Lord who helped me rescue, res- who rescued me from the lion's paw will rescue me against this Philistine. It's all the Lord's doing. Who? Um, sent that stone flying to um, Goliath's forehead, it was David. But the Lord was behind it all, and he knew it. When there's humility and that success, you're always thinking of the Lord. And at one point, um, think about the difference here. Saul was chasing um, David and wanted to kill him. And David had the opportunity to kill Saul, but he didn't. That is the most chosen one. And uh, later on, they were looking again uh, after this man's livestock, and the, they said, hey, can you give us some refreshments? The man said, no, who are you? I mean, frightfully did so. And David says, oh, he pretty much gets ready for battle to go and um, kill everybody in that household. But Abigail, the man's wife, hears about it. And um, he comes to David, and he appeals. He comes with gifts and refreshments, more than that. And she appeals to him. And this is what she says. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And she just basically appeals and appealing to the Lord, to the promise of the Lord. And David relents. So when the Bible talks about how we should let the Lord, basically vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Let the Lord deal with that. He is just. And, um, and we can also forgive. Um, how we can do that is through humility through always seeing that the Lord is at the center of it all. Um, And later on, 
you see Solomon, who is the writer of Proverbs. God says to him, what do you want from me? Ask anything. What would you say to God if he asked you that? And he says, I'm just a child, and now I'm leading your people. I need wisdom to understand things rightly and to do things rightly under you. And so the center for him was God. All right, the fourth point, we'll go through this quickly, the conquering potentate, that is Jesus. Because potentate is used in some languages, uh, uh, sorry, older translations of sovereign. So you see it in First Timothy. I just use it for alliteration. And in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 onwards, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the last point, which is count the countering plan, that is countering pride, um, we see that it seems... Victory in the area of humility comes not by focusing on self, but by focusing on God, and specifically Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and the risen Son of God. And so, I just commend you to humility, and let's remember what it is, is having the right understanding of God, first of all, and that He is the center of all things and having an appropriate estimation of self under God and with others. The underlying principle of the plan to counter the pride is not necessarily ignore your own perspective, but by grace, stand in the right position to have the right perspective. And if you're still not looking up to God and others, get a different and a better posture. It helps to kneel and pray. You always look up to God and up to others when you're kneeling. God help us. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are able to conquer pride. Thank you for Christ, the sovereign who conquered pride and sin and death and guilt and shame, took away shame and guilt. Thank you that he is coming again as the conquering king. And I pray that you would help us to continue running to you with this perennial sin of pride that keeps just attacking us from within. I thank you for the Holy Spirit who can and does help us uproot it. So may all glory and honor come to you. 